Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He's been name-dropped dozens and dozens of times and probably doesn't even know it, so I'm happy to get his side of the story and clarify a few things that have been brought up. So today's guest is currently our head coach with the women's national team. He's a member of Gold Medal Square and a big influence on their beach program right now. He's been to the 2016 Olympics as a member of the coaching staff with the USA. He's got over 12 years' experience in the NCAA as a coach. He's currently at Georgia. And he played at UCSD. Please welcome to the show, Tom Black. Tom, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. So yeah, we've been lucky enough to have a, a lot of members of the the women's national team. And we even had John Mayer on the show who have name dropped you several times. So like I said, it'll be good to get your side of it. But uh, <laughs> just, just to start us off with you growing up in California and eventually playing at uh, SD there, what made you fall in love with volleyball? Were you playing other sports growing up or was volleyball always the one that you kind of chose to invest all your time and energy into? Yeah, no, it, it took a while. I, I liked it right away. It took me a while to actually love it. You know, I started in eighth grade and I was, uh, excuse me, I was way more into basketball and uh, football also. But my, my dad actually was really on me to continue playing volleyball. I think first two years of high school, I really just kind of wanted to give it up and focus on basketball, but he, he wouldn't let me. Was, he would just kind of make different deals with me. Like I, I could go to basketball camp, uh, but only if I went to a volleyball camp also. Um, and then something in me just my junior year of high school just switched and I just kind of recognized how fun volleyball was compared to the other sports I was playing. And, um, and then it, then it really developed into a passion and, uh, never left from there. Now, if you had to pick like a point where it happened for you, is it just when like your skills get good enough to play volleyball, at, like an athletic level? Cause we've had other guests on the show and when you're just playing, I don't know, primary school gym class, it's not as fun, but when you get to high school and you're jumping high and you're hammering balls, I think that's when it gets fun, right? Is that when it kind of clicked for you? I think I, I liked it right away because I just love trying to hit the ball really hard. So I remember in eighth grade, just the feeling of doing that was just awesome. You know, and uh, it was just different from any other sport. I mean, it's kind of maybe baseball is the closest thing where you like really feel like you make contact on the ball, but you just get to do it way more often in volleyball. So I think that was the first point I liked it. But there was a point and uh, I guess it's kind of like a negative story, but in junior year of high school, I mean, basketball is just so much running all the time. You know, you like <laughs> run 15s and run 11s and run liners and, we're just running all the time. And uh, I remember in volleyball practice, our team was kind of dogging it. So our coach made us run a 15. Uh, and in basketball, we would literally run 10 of those every practice, you know, on top of other things. And so we ran one 15, just touching the line 15 times. And uh, our volleyball coach really got on us like, you guys screw up again and I'm going to make you do another 15. And the guy's like, no, no, not that. And I was just laughing because it was just, <laughs> I was like nothing. So I was like, oh, this sport's great. So that, I think that's when I just like, thought, I just started realizing how much more fun volleyball was and just the whole attitude of it. So I think that's when I really like, okay, this time I'm just going this way. So. And did you get into the beach game in a big way too? Or was indoor kind of always your focus when you're playing? Indoor was my focus for a while, and I was, I was struggling a little bit in high school. Uh, once I got passionate about it, I was still struggling. And um, that was right when beach volleyball was really in its golden years of, like, big money, big TV contracts. It was on, like, you know, prime time on NBC. So it was really visible. And it was uh, just really easy to see, oh, man, the sport is awesome. And I recognized I needed to play more to become better. And, you know, doubles just seemed like a natural way to kind of develop your game. So it was like senior year of high school. I started really getting into it. And then I just fell in love with that right away too. So it's probably like a good 10 year stretch where I was just playing year round, but you either doubles or indoor. Nice. Nice. And with you doing well at college, like you won a volleyball magazine award and, and you were a letterman. Did you consider going overseas and playing professional? Like, did you know what professional volleyball was when you fell in love with volleyball or what was the next kind of step for you uh, after your playing days at university? Yeah, I went, I tried out for a couple teams. I remember like, I, uh, 
I, you know, I, I, I could just tell I kind of reached my ceiling in college. I, I got offered a Division II contract in Germany, which doesn't sound very impressive, but those guys were still you know, better than I was. So I think <laughs> the writing was on the wall there. And, and then beach was kind of what I wanted to focus on more anyway. So, so I just kind of figured it out from there. Nice. And then just help me out with the, the timeline. When did you get into coaching? Because uh, John Mayer mentioned, I think you coached him in high school, right? So you yeah, must have started your coaching coach, career pretty young, right? Yeah, I coached out in high school and then I coached him in junior college. Um, yeah, I was, I was pursuing a pro beach career like right out of college. And uh, UC San Diego is, is a really academic institution. And I was working a really crummy kind of menial labor job. So it was like so depressing that I was in student debt with this college degree and uh, no real job to show for it for all that. <laughs> Uh, so I was just kind of whining and complaining while I was doing some conditioning with my best friend at the time, Travis Ferguson. And he told me to shut up and help his dad out at uh, Royal High School. Uh, and his dad's a guy by the name of Bob Ferguson, who's a legend in that area in Simi Valley, California. And just, you know, he's in all the local Hall of Fames there. And I was just really fortunate that he was my first experience, you know, just a great leader and just really kind of lit my fire towards coaching. So it took a while before I became a full-time coach, but that, that right away let me know I was, I was really into it and just thought it was a great job. Yeah. Just so any of our listeners kind of hearing your story going like, Oh, like he just decided he was going to coach and now he does it for a living <laughs> at the national team level and the NCAA level level. If you just want to go like surface level and maybe fast forward, but how long did it take you to realize you could do this for like a living? Right. Cause obviously at that stage you're, you mentioned you're in student debt and you're kind of just helping out this high school program how long of a journey was it for you to really make this like your, your full-time career? Yeah, I mean, it was a long journey. It was a mountain of death. I mean, I, I, was, I wasn't afraid to spend money if I thought the person could help me learn, you know, or to, or to work for free or any of that stuff. And I, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, so it was 90, 1997 and I took the Team Canada job, um, what, 2018. So, you know, you can kind of do the math there. But it's just a really incremental journey. I was a assistant high school boys coach then I had high school boys coach and then became a head men's junior college coach and that's where I really had like the kind of the first great mentor of my life and just step-by-step assistant d1 men's and then got my first head coach job at uh, my alma mater UC San Diego that was division two women's and then division two or sorry division one at Loyola Marymount became an assistant with Karch or with originally with Hugh and then with Karch Sorry, consultant coach with Hugh, and then I was officially on staff with Karch uh, for USA and then um, Georgia and Canada. So it was just, yeah, very step-by-step. Nice, nice. And were there steps along the way that kind of confirmed it? Or your your girlfriend at the time or wife now, was there ever a moment where you're kind of like, man, I got to find a real job? Or was there there moments along the way you're kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm on pace for this. I'm going to make a run at this. Yeah, I think I, I, was, I just kept coaching more and more and more. You know, for a while I was deciding between coaching and being a writer of all things. And then I uh, just decided to do the coaching. So I was just coaching a ton of teams all the time. I mean, I was uh, like, if I was coaching high school, I'd also be coaching club and working summer camps. And um, I was doing, even when I was at USC with the men, I remember I thought I'd made it. That was my first full-time coaching job. And I was making 29,000 with no benefits. <laughs> um, but I was still running a boys club and coaching a girls club team and running, I, I think I worked 12 camps that summer. So I was just grinding a lot. And uh, it was, I, it was, you know, w- and then even UC San Diego, that was my first full-time job, but I, I had to live off my credit card to make it. The salary was so low. So I made the decision well before um, I had any any kind of like income that <laughs> was reasonable, I guess. Nice, nice. And I'm sure our listeners' ears perked up when you mentioned Hugh there. Is that uh, How did that opportunity come together? Was he just willing to have 
you know, energetic people in the gym who are willing to maybe be an arm or run a camera or a speed gun? Or how did you get the opportunity with the U.S. team to be on his staff and then follow up and be on Karch's staff? Yeah, I just think I'm fortunate. Um, another mentor of mine, Ron Larson, uh, was an assistant with the men in the uh, the Rio Games. And then again, uh, in uh, the following Olympics under Knipe. But he and I were really close and he taught me a lot. So I was just always trying to watch their games and go in their practices whenever I could. And so I, I got it. You know, I wasn't super tight with you at the time, but definitely got a relationship with them. And uh, when I got the job at LMU, I was... I was just 30 to 45 minutes drive away from where the, the men were training. I'm sorry, the, at this time he was with the women. Uh, and I just emailed him and said, hey, like, can I just can I just watch? Like, I'll, I'll shag balls. And I, I wasn't asking for a coaching job. I was literally just asking if I could watch. And, uh, and then, you know, if he needed any help, I'll do whatever he wanted. And he said, yeah, yeah, come on in. And the first day I came in and I just watched. And then the second day he told me to start helping out and it just kind of grew. And then I became a consultant coach like um, the last year and a half, which was basically like whenever they traveled, I got whoever was left, you know, so they usually people who saw me uh, running the practice weren't happy to see me because they wish they were on the roster with the main team. And, uh, but it was, you know, it was a phenomenal experience for sure. And then Karch and I got really close to that experience. And then uh, when Karch got hired, uh, I was lucky enough that he asked me and away we went. Awesome. Awesome. And, and Coach Your Brains Out has done a good job getting guests like yourself and Hugh and Karch. So I'm wondering uh, for any of our, our listeners wanting, they can definitely check out those episodes. But from in your own words, I guess, why is Hugh so great? Like before we get to some Karch stories, why why is Hugh the way he is? What's what's the secret sauce there? Why he's so successful and doesn't really have an enemy. Everybody wants to be around him, talk his ear off, steal ideas. Like what what's the secret sauce there? Yeah, it's probably not just one thing, right? I mean, but he's got a he's got a phenomenal pedigree, you know. So I think he kind of played at a golden age of coaching at BYU, and you know, Carl McGowan was there, and Troy Tanner was assisting him, and um, so I think you know he got started off on the right foot. Um, you know, I think he's incredibly intelligent. I think he's an incredible communicator. You know, one of the best I've ever been around, and he's 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 a tough dude. I mean, you know, he he shows up to work and he does the work every day, and he's you know, not, not scared to confront the people he's got to confront and, you know, like pat the back on the people that he's pat the back with. But I think he's really consistent with his work ethic and very skilled and very smart. And, you know, I think the combination of all that stuff really comes out. Nice, nice. And uh, as you mentioned there, you're jumping from roles where you're working with the university team, you're working with the national team, and you're still doing clubs. So what advice can you give to us coaches out there about like, Oh, you're in huge, huge gym or cartridge gym. And you're like, Oh, that's a really good play. I'm going to run my big faster than that. And then you get back to your club team and you're like, Oh man, we just don't have the horses yet. Or we don't have the technique. Like, was there ever moments where you were really impressed and tried to steal or borrow an idea and it just wasn't going to work? Or how did you navigate those situations where you saw what the highest level could be? And then what would you do at the grassroots level to follow up with that? Yeah, that's a really good, that's different than what I thought you were originally asking. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I think the important thing is understanding the principles, you know, so it's that quote, you know, uh, you know, as to methods, there there are many, but you know, principles there are few. And you know, complex, intelligent behavior arises from simple, clear principles. So I think understanding those principles is the deal. And then you get to adjust your methods uh, based on the you know the pace of your, the learners, the skill in your gym. So I think if you think if you see something that's really cool, I think I think you want to ask some questions behind that, like not just why, not just how you do that, but why are you doing that? And um, and then maybe even asking that coach too, would you do it at my level? And then it doesn't mean you have to do what the coach says, but I think you just want to understand like what's, what's the principle that's enabling them to do this, you know, this method that I'm seeing. 
Um, and if you understand the principle, you can, you can do some cool stuff. If you understand the method, you really just kind of have one thing you can do and then you're stuck. Nice. Nice. So with this knowledge that you're, you're gaining by, you know, like you said, like shadowing coaches, helping out, being around them when you got to, I guess most people know you from LMU, I guess is like your big break. And when you really took control of a program and and built it, I'm not, uh, slighting your previous experiences, just a lot to cover here. So to, so to focus on one, when you got the head job, how did you like to enter that program? Like, obviously you're inheriting athletes from a previous coach, but do you like to come in with your own expectations and how you're going to influence the culture? Or is there a learning phase too, from your end about like what you can do with that program? Cause like you said, the, the methods and principles are going to change, but how did you install like the direction you wanted to take them, I guess? Right. Well, the methods are going to change. The principles are not. And so that's, that's kind of the deal. So, I mean, you have, you have to have a vision uh, of where you think the, the program can go, you know, and you got to have some faith in the process and the faith comes from your belief in the principles. Um, but then you got to learn the people and the people are always different and the situation is always different. And that's where your methods are going to change a little bit. So I don't know if that answers it. I can, I'm happy to go more in detail, but that, does that answer it? Or? Sure. Yeah. And then, uh, can you give us like a tangible example about how, how you tackled that? Like, did you have a year one plan, a year two plan, or were you honestly just getting feedback and debriefing and, and kind of taking yeah. it in? Like how, how would you navigate a coach taking over a new program and how did you do like short-term and long-term goals and things like that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, it's kind of, um, try to figure out the standards and then we want to meet the standards, but we got to know where we're, where we're at, you know, so we know how much distance there is to cover. Um, you know, so we, uh, that, that's part of just seeing what they look like, you know, <laughs> seeing what they look like on day one and getting to know them as people and then trying to change behaviors and, and get the environment going in your gym where you, where you can meet those standards and you just measure it and you're looking for constant improvement. You know, there's no real magic to it. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the deal. Nice, nice. And then sorry to jump around again, but just to go to no. uh, your role with the USA, were you hired for a full cycle? Like, is that how they like to do their coaching staff? Or when did you and Karch kind of connect and bring you in that, uh, you know, you could write down on the calendar that 2016 was going to be the goal? Yeah, well, usually with, with the full time staff, they do that in quads. But then there's lots of people who kind of come and go within that. Like I said, so I, I, I think I went from San Diego to LMU. I think Hugh had been there for a year. Um, and again, I was, I wasn't trying to get on the staff. I was really just trying to learn. I, I was totally willing to more than willing to just stand on the sidelines and absorb information. I just want to be a better coach. There's definitely a lot of people that come in the gym with an agenda, but I, I really didn't have one. So he just kind of naturally asked me to help out and the role just kept growing kind of organically, you know? So I was, I, I was kind of, you know, I was a fixture, I guess, or a regular by the time it ended. So by that time, then Karch did, you know, when he offered me the assistant job, that was for the full quad, you know, for the, for the, uh, Rio games. And how does Karch like to organize his staff? Like, would you say you were on the offensive side, the defensive side? Did you have a position? Like what was your main role with uh, that team? I was on the offensive side of the ball. So I really focused on the setters and was a offensive kind of the offensive coordinator. And Jamie was the defensive coordinator. And that was like the primary way we did it. Nice. And then how did you like to organize the, the practice environment there? Like, would you guys talk a lot of tactics or are you a big technical guy? Like how did you like to kind of influence the offense uh, with your role there? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think your tactics are dictated by your fundamentals. They're dictated by your technique. So you're trying to build up these techniques that will allow you to do lots of things, you know? So we're, uh, you know, we wanted to be able to go fast from lots of places and we wanted to be able to hit from range or sorry, hit with range from lots of areas. So you're, you're constantly evaluating your fundamentals and seeing if they'll allow you to do that. And if not, you know, that's what we're working on. 
And how did you find managing that? So going from like the NCAA where you have contact with your athletes basically year round, even in those dead periods or whatever, but you're in the gym constantly working and then maybe you're working with Courtney Thompson and she's away with her pro team. Are you still connecting with her? Or are you really only working with the athletes who are face to face in the gym? Yeah, we definitely did some contact. Karch was really good about that. He was always um, checking in with the girls. Uh, but, you know, there's only so much you can do when they're with another coach and another team. So you can definitely talk and, you know, there's some value there, but you kind of got to, you got to let them go a little bit. It's just, you know, even if, even if you really think you've identified something and the player agrees with you, you're still, they're still in a different environment, with a different coach, and it's not always helpful. So you got to be careful. I think. Nice. Nice. And then with your experience, when you get to the Olympic games, how did you guys do your prep? So it's just not happy to be there that you're on this, this grand stage, but you're there to compete. And I imagine we'll get into this in a bit with the difference between Canada and the U S but, uh, was it fair to say you guys have expectations and it's talked about a lot that you're going to win a gold medal or where did that team stand as far as like goal setting and actual outcome focus? Yeah. Yeah. I think the outcome is so prevalent and overwhelming that you really want to keep your eyes on the process and just understand that the outcome is going to happen because I think it's, uh, it's just, it's just too big and it's too in your face and it's too obvious. You know, it's a, you know, especially with USA volleyball where, you know, we were, we were well aware we were number one in the world and we were the USA and there's expectations that come with that. And you can't run away with that. But I really think, um, I think if we would have been really talking about outcomes a lot, it just would have gotten unbelievably oppressive, you know? So it's a, it's just really important to, for us to stay on the process of what's going to make us a better player, what's going to make us a better team. And then we are, we're all aware that that's going to give us the best chance of what we wanted. And, you know, Karch would touch on, you know, uh, you know, he would say a lot that, you know, the women have never won a gold in the Olympics and one day that's going to change. Sure. It would be nice if that's us, you know, and, uh, but today let's, let's focus on this and that'll give us our best chance. Um, so that's about as far as we took it, but it's, uh, you know, it was a very driven coaching staff and very driven, accomplished group of players. And uh, everyone was aware of the goal. So I think you really got to keep your eyes on what you need to do to achieve the goal and just trust that the, the goal will take care of itself. Is it, you know, it sound, it's, yeah, I'm making it sound easy, but it's obviously very challenging. <laughs> and then looking back, is that how the team was able to respond and win, win a bronze medal? Because I think I agree with you. Like the team wants to be the team to win the gold medal. And that's probably the goal getting off the plane. But losing a tough semifinal... Is that how yeah. you get everybody grouped up is just the, the message was so consistent and the, the team was buying into what the, the consistent message was from you and Karch? Well, the message from Karch, not from me. So you got to, he was a leader. Um, but I, yeah, yeah, I think that's a little bit of a different deal. I mean, that game was so disappointing, obviously. I mean, it's just such a soul crusher to, uh, you know, it's just one of those things, you know, the Olympics, it's, you know, it's once every four years. And for a lot of people, it's, if you, if you, if you are fortunate enough to get there, it's the only time. So like when you lose that game, it's just kind of different than any other game. I mean, you're seeing, you're seeing your whole, all your hopes kind of slip away. So it's, it's really crushing. So I think, uh, you know, the next 24 hours, there was a little bit of triage. Um, we kind of had to have like a funeral almost, or, you know, that we, we kind of just grieved, uh, the loss as a team and then had a bunch of individual meetings and slowly kind of tried to collect ourselves. And then it was kind of a, you know, if you look at uh, the moment we lost to uh, the moment we went out to the warm-ups, you can kind of see us gradually getting kind of back to an equilibrium where we could go compete. But there's definitely a process to it. You know, that that that's it's a really unique moment. Nice, nice. And then as you're progressing, like you, you've been on the U.S. staff for a while, like you said, you went through two head coaches there. Is that when you got a taste to coach the international game? Like, is there enough difference between the international game and what you're seeing at the NCAA that made you want to pursue the Team Canada opening when it came up? Yeah, I, mean, I think there's, there's definitely a difference. 
coaching the international. I mean, there's a difference coaching every level for sure. But I, uh, yeah, I mean, that was my entire experience. It was like seven years there with USA. So that was what kind of made me have a, an understanding of what Canada might, might need or, you know, might, what might be able to help it and, you know, giving, give me a sense of confidence. I might have, you know, be able to provide something to it. And, um, yeah, that was, that was the whole experience for me internationally. Awesome. Awesome. And then just to name drop once again, coach your brains out. So you were on their show and, and, uh, you mentioned when you took our job, but, uh, you did some research. I was wondering if you could give us some example of what were some things looking into to make sure that you were going to be a fit for team Canada and that they were going to be a fit for you. Like what really drove the decision that, uh, one, you're going to have enough time to do this with your role at Georgia, but, and, and your family commitments as well. But what made you think that this was an attractive job that you could make a difference here with our program? That was a couple of things. I, I, if I don't give you the answer, you're going to have to guide me a little bit. Um, yeah, the number one thing far and away was I, I just felt Canada could be so much better uh, than they were. And that, that really excited me. And, uh, and, you know, just anytime you get to represent your country or represent a country, it's just such a thrill. And, uh, you know, I just, I just felt like we could make an impact. Um, and with that, you know, Carrie McDonald, who runs, you know, the integrative sports science department was the guy running the search. And, you know, he has a huge role in volleyball Canada and I knew I'd be working closely with him. And that really excited me because we're, we're, you know, he and I are philosophically aligned and I knew we'd be on the same page. And I thought there was some special things we could do with that synergy. Um, you know, and then the third thing I just, I just remember playing Canada. I just remember playing Canada with USA and I knew some of the players and I just, thought there was an opportunity there. I thought there was some potential. So, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm saying what, what you heard, but I remember those are kind of being the big things that really stuck out. I, uh, the interview process really took a long time. I mean, it's, I think I, I don't know, it felt like six months. It probably wasn't that long. It might've been like three months, but it really took a long time. So I had, a, I was, I worked for a long time on the plan and like understanding the landscape and how, how Canada volleyball worked and how it was funded and how their quads were structured. So I, I, I by the time I got hired, I, felt like I had a pretty clear understanding of how things worked and what needed to happen. And I mean, I still didn't know the players and I didn't know how the process was going to go, but I felt like I had a, I had a road, you know, some kind of roadmap that we could work off of. Nice. And when you inherit like a national team program, I think it's, it's very tempting that everybody wants to go to the Olympics. Everybody wants to do well at the Olympics. Like, but that's still an unknown to a lot of players, especially with, with our, our indoor uh, national team on the women's side, like that, I don't think we have a current player who's been to the Olympics, obviously. Right. So with that being the goal, how do you navigate the unknown? Cause I'm sure you can't just come in and say, well, I'm Tom black. I was at the 2016 games this is like this, follow me. This is how we're going to do it. Right. But how do you get the, the players to buy into this unknown and pretty lofty goal? Right. Yeah. I think that's the hard part. I mean, that's the, that's the messy part. You know, I think with USA, like I, we were talking about earlier, you know, I think the outcome is overwhelming. It's just so in front of your face and you're so aware of it um, that you're trying to do everything you can to, like get yourself on the process to try to take the outcome out of your mind and get to what get to what you like to do, which is play volleyball at the highest the highest level possible and get better at volleyball and see where it takes you. And Canada was the opposite. I don't know if there was really an expectation to qualify for the Olympics or that anyone really believed that we could do that. Um, so it's kind of the opposite of USA, where we had to like really get clear on if that's what we were trying to do or not. And then and then from there we could have a we could have a more structured process. You know, are are our behaviors lining up with what we're trying to accomplish um but it's kind of a it was kind of a flip model of a uh, usa if that makes sense yeah and how did you define those behaviors like are you using stats and videos from teams who have been there and kind of using that as a model or how are you 
trying to show again, like with, with the end goal being unknown to so many athletes, how are you determining that like, we're going to win Tuesday, we're going to get better on Tuesday and that's going to help us in our journey. Like, how are you instilling that belief that, uh, you kind of have credibility in what you're talking about and the athletes are going to be with you in the long run? Yeah. You know, it took, it took a while. I think the first month was really messy. You know, I, I think it's very much, uh, you know, you could give me any volleyball player in the world and I could ask them like, do you want to be in the Olympics? And they'll all say yes. And then, you know, you start having them do the daily work that it requires and lots of people start dropping out pretty fast, you know? And so I think it was the difference between, you know, wanting to and doing it. And, uh, we just kind of had to point it out and talk about it a lot. And, uh, we, you know, we got, we got to a moment, uh, that it was just a really simple question, but it resonated with them. You know, if you were in the Olympics, would you do that? And that just really kind of stuck in our gym. You know, if, if you were in the Olympics right now, would you show up at this time or this time? If, if, if you were in the Olympics right now, would you practice like this or like that? Would you, you know, would you warm up like this or like that? And it just that, that, uh, that line of thought started getting some energy after a certain amount of time. And I thought by the, uh, by the time we were, uh, in the VNL qualifier down in Peru, uh, you know, I thought we, you know, we were a different unit. And how did you come across your own coaching style with like teaching principles and, and the growth mindset and almost like this, this faith-based style of, of teaching where you, you know, what's going to happen. We just got to really plug away and keep doing work and more work and more work. Right. Like, how did you narrow this down? Obviously we've heard from your, your earlier answers there that you've just coached a ton. Right. But how did you work on this? Cause I think what coaches really want to know is like, we use the word transfer a lot here, but I'm not sure people know how to actually measure it or how it got measured in the first place. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we still can't exactly measure it. That's part of what makes it so hard. It's, uh, yeah, I think it's a combination of, uh, you know, personal failures, great mentors, and, you know, kind of experience. It's just, uh, I mean, I was just a complete opinion-based coach coming out when I first started. And, um, yeah, just wasn't making my players a lot better and was trying to coach through emotion and passion. And, you know, sometimes that's good, but lots of times it makes you feel empty after. And, you know, we want to be a mayor. We want to be aware of our emotions. We don't want to be governed by them. And, um, and then I just got exposed to, uh, you know, Ken Stanley at Pierce college and he changed my life. He really showed me that there's, there are laws of learning and there's a way to, you know, bring your students or your players around. And then I got introduced to Carl McGowan with Goldmill squared and that deepened it even further. He, you know, I hadn't really heard of motor learning until I heard of him and, you know, and then from him, you know, Jim McLaughlin and I've been around Marv Dunphy a long time. And, you know, Ron Larson, I mentioned him before, but he was really the first guy that he really took the time, like hours with me to kind of show me how to apply these principles, these motor learning principles into your practice. You know, is, is this consistent with random versus blocked? Is this consistent with whole versus part? And uh, he spent a lot of time with me for a number of years uh, as well. You know, and I could go on and on from there, but, uh, you know, I think. I think those mentors are just, you know, being willing to be a sponge around them and uh, not, not being scared to make mistakes or to show that I really don't know anything. I was totally willing to do that. And it's just kind of shaped over the years, you know, lots and lots of reps. And I'm still trying to still trying to get better. I mean, just on the phone, Jim McLaughlin today and, you know, trying to figure out how not how to not mess up my outside hitters. So, I mean, it's, it's a never ending process. And hopefully we can be excited by that. Hopefully we can be fired up that we have something to learn today and we'll, we'll get a little bit better. You know, that's what we want from our players. So. Was there ever a moment uh, where the theory didn't really match what you were seeing in the gym? Like, uh, 
I, I find that sometimes where you read a cool book and then you go to your club team and you try something and you're like, oh, I must be doing something wrong here because this is not this is not working, right? So with you coming in and not to throw anybody under the bus, but when we had Autumn Bailey on the show, she mentioned she was really frustrated. Like I think she really, she had to work on some skills and there's like a super high level athlete who's done so much in our sport already. And, and you're asking her to do new things and challenging her. And she mentioned, she was like, I went from being, I thought I was good. I went pretty bad. And then I got really good. And I was like, Oh, that's an interesting journey. Right. So with the athlete being frustrated, um, how did you navigate those situations or was there ever a moment where maybe what you were doing at USA wasn't going to work with Canada and the, and the theory didn't match what you were seeing in the gym? Yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't what I was doing at USA though. I, ha- I had to say that sometimes where I just couldn't get by in, but it, it was just, I mean, the, it's not about USA. It was about the principles, you know, that, and, um, you know, I was exposed to those principles a long time ago and I'm, I'm still trying to understand and apply them better. Uh, you know, I think the frustration that you're talking about, you know, frustration comes from being at the edges of our ability. So I think I think that frustration is unavoidable. But it's like I said earlier, we want to be aware of our emotions. We don't want to be governed by them. So so for for lots of people, you know, I've, I've been in this boat too. We all have. But sometimes it, it becomes all about the frustration, which is understandable and part of being human. But once it's all about the frustration, it's not about getting better anymore. So we got we have to learn through that process, and uh, we got to ask why we're frustrated and um, what do we want more, and how are we responding to that frustration. Uh, is there a better way to respond and, you know, try to get more connected to our goal? And to me, like, that's part of the learning process. That's a huge part of that coach-teacher relationship. So, we're, you know, we're not, we're not trying to create rainbows and ponies every day. We're trying to create this really, um, hopefully, exciting environment where athletes feel valued, for sure. They feel valued, they feel cared about, but they also feel challenged. And that's, that's part of why coaching is so hard. You know, if you think about creating that balance every day for your players and for your teams – you know, that's that's why coaching will never get boring. You know, we, we how how can you ever possibly get too good at that, right? So it's uh, but that's what we're trying to do. Awesome, awesome. Thanks for your answer so far. I'm learning a ton here, and I bet our listeners are too. So, <laughs> kind of the the art of coaching. So hopefully, you just don't say that, and that's the art of coaching, and you get off the hook here. But I'm wondering, like, one thing that coaches always kind of come back to is you can really only do what your players are able to do, right? But I'm wondering, how do you find the balance of like? pulling up and saying, well, this is what we're able to do. So that's what we're going to build around versus pushing them and trying to get them to do more. Like where, where does that point come in training? We're kind of like, you know what, we're just not going to be able to do ABC. So we're going to switch it. Like, how, how do you know that that's the reality of what your team is versus no, we just need to put in some more hours and we're going to get this. Well, you don't know that. And I think that's where the humility has to come in as a coach. Cause if you lose that humility, you're going to get fixed. And if you get fixed, you're going to put a ceiling on your athletes abilities because you're just going to keep teaching the way you always have been. So I think there has to be a humility that, we never know the final answer on if what we're doing is right or if this is as good as this player can get, you know, and I think you got to assume that the answer to both is no, that there is a better way to coach this and this player can get better. Um, because if we look at it any other way, we're, we're going to put a ceiling, like I said, either on how we're teaching it or how good they can be because of how we're teaching it. So I think there's this tension between, um, is there, you know, this, this player can get better and I can teach better. I think we have to have that mindset. And then there also has to be the tension between that and is what I'm asking them to do fair within the amount of time given to me. Right. So, um, and we have to balance that and walk that line. Um, so you know, the, the, the player has to be challenged to get better, but they have to be, they have to feel like they have a reasonable amount of time to perform the skill so they can, they can compete with confidence. And that's, that's the tension we're walking. That's the fine line. And again, you, I don't think you can get good enough at that either too, but I think it's really important as coaches. That's why 
that's why humility is important uh, because if we're not humble, we're not going to be open to the fact that you know, we don't know it all and that we can do it better next year than we did it this year, but we have to be able to look at our methods and question ourselves that there probably is a better way. Can we find it? And how are you modeling this as a coach? Because just hearing you talk, this great examples, but I'm wondering if you could give us like a, a physical example of what you do that a coach can model that they have a growth mindset or that you're negotiating yourself through frustration or that you're willing to be open. Like how, how are you showing the athletes that you're also in this struggle? Cause I think it's one thing to put the message on the whiteboard and just say, go do it and have expectations for them that you're not going to follow. But I think it's sometimes challenging for a coach to, to model that they do have a growth mindset. So I'm wondering if you have any examples you could give us. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you're making me cringe cause you're making me think about all the times I screw up. Um, <laughs> but it's like, I mean, you just start with that. Hey, I really screwed up yesterday and, uh, and this is why, and this is what I'm going to do about it. And, you know, I remember in passing, uh, I mean, there was the first practice with Canada that we had at UBC university of British Columbia. Um, I remember the day before, you know, I, I didn't mean it to be insulting, but I, I think I just, got lazy in my speech and um, I was trying to explain an offensive system and how we were going to attack a blocking scheme. And I, I, I kind of made a reference to how they were previously playing and how we might've easily felt like we could easily exploit it. And I, uh, I, I don't think I said it really rudely. It was, it was like in the middle of a package, but I thought about it that night and I'm like, well, one, that was super rude. That was really disrespectful to the previous you know, staff and really disrespectful to these players who were just giving hundred percent to what they're being asked. They were doing exactly what they should be doing and really arrogant on my part that, you know, I'm, I'm just assuming like, of course I believe this is better. I wouldn't teach it, but, um, I didn't have to go about it and that's not who I want to be. And, um, so I, I had to, so I had to bring that up. And, you know, it was, it was kind of one of those things too, where like, if I didn't bring it up, probably people would have forgotten about it, but I haven't forgotten about it. So yeah, I just don't want them to think that, I think it's okay or that they need to be vulnerable, but I don't. Um, so I remember UBC, I, I brought it up and I said, Hey, I owe you guys an apology. You know, you, you were executing a system that was being asked of you and you were doing it to the best of your abilities, doing hundred percent, which is exactly what you have to do as players. And, and coaches were asking you to execute the things that they believed in, which is exactly what we're going to do. So I, I was out of line there and, and I apologize. And, um, I want you guys to know that I understand how hard this stuff is and I appreciate how much you're giving to it. And, and I, just got to ask you to believe me that this is going to pay off because this is where I saw you three weeks ago. And this is where I see you now. And this is where I see you three weeks from today. And we could be really, really good. So, um, like you're probably feeling some energy as I talk because I was really being open and I was like, Hey, like I screw up just like you guys. And now let's go. Cause we could be better. And, um, so I, yeah, that's just one example. It comes off the top of my head. Nice, nice. And I was hoping you could give us another example of just how you navigate the, the growth mindset. So one great example that John Mayer gave us is like, you, you can't ask an athlete to have a growth mindset and then yell at them when they make mistakes. Like that's not, uh, that's not a good example of what we're trying to do here. But I'm wondering, where is the balance about coaching them up and giving them feedback and correcting? Like, how do you walk that line that, you know, do you give them more reps? Do you kind of give them feedback and then let them, you know, do a little bit more? Or, or what would be like the the secret sauce to how you've made your gyms into a growth mindset that maybe some of our listeners can steal and start applying in their gyms. Yeah. I'm a little feistier than John. I think yeah, John's, uh, which is probably why John has way better relationships with his players than me. Um, so <laughs> I, I think there's, I think there's a time, I think there's a time to feel a little bit of an edge from a coach, but I don't think it's nearly as much as maybe we want it to be sometimes, but yeah, for sure. We can't be barking and yelling at people, um, all the time. Yeah. Uh, 
So what was your question? I got a little sidetracked. Sorry, I was just wondering if you could give us an example of what growth mindset looks like. Like if I'm in a drill and you're telling me to have a growth mindset, but you yell at me every time I make a mistake, obviously that's not right. creating or modeling it, right? So how do you, you know, give feedback and push people, but still encourage this mindset that it's okay to make mistakes. We're all learning. Like we're going to get through this. Well, it's just what you said. I mean, if I'm yelling at you every time, then it's not okay to make a mistake, is it? Right. You know, so it's, uh, we can only, uh, you know, we can only get what we're, reinforcing so you know the the growth mindset is the ability that the growth mindset as i understand it is the belief that uh skills skills can be grown and improved if i'm willing to work hard enough and work smart enough you know and that the, the only way to grow those skills the only way is to make mistakes which makes me really hate that word because i don't see them as mistakes i see them as steps on the ladder right to get to where we want to go there there literally is no other way to get to that successful rep that we couldn't do before without those you know i'm using air quotes here mistakes and they're, they're not mistakes there's these little gifts of information to get us to that higher level rep and and once we get it we're probably not going to be able to do it again for you know 10 more reps or five more minutes because we're not very good at it yet we just did it once right so we have to work incredibly hard just to get two out of 10, three out of 10, right? And then we stay there for a little bit and then we spike up all of a sudden to five or six out of 10. So there was this little plateau between three out of five where it seemed we weren't getting any better. And that's really frustrating for players and coaches. But in reality, we were learning and that's what led to that leap. And you know, it kind of goes on and on and on. So as a coach, we have to be incredibly mindful of this environment. Like, are we promoting these mistakes? You know, what does that mean? Okay, well, it means are our drills putting them on the edges of their ability? Like if they... If the player does what they need to do mentally, emotionally, and physically, and they do this drill 100%, is it going to put them at the edge of the ability where they're going to feel a lot of failure? That's that's part of our job. And then no one likes to live in that environment, so I have to I got to be good with my feedback. I got to be good with my body language. I got to be good with my relationships and my tone of voice, and because all all that stuff, there has to be some support there in this really challenging environment. They got to feel like I'm on their side, and uh, and you know it's, it's a dance, right? And the player's got to be attacking it, and the coach's got to be attacking it with them, and. If it's a, if it's really a challenging environment, then that means both are going to screw up. You know, the players not going to the players going to have some reps where maybe they didn't give it their best, and the coach is going to get some feedback that didn't make sense because you know you're both pushing yourself. So, you, um, so those are those are great little opportunities to you know show your your vulnerability and make things safe. Like, hey, maybe I didn't say it the right way. Did that resonate? And the players say, no, that made no sense. Okay, my fault. Let's try this. You know, like you're just you're just in it together. And if you're really in it together, it's uh, it's a really messy environment, but it's a really exciting environment because you're both willing to admit your screw ups and then you do it better next time. And I think what makes it exciting is you, you form a relationship that is all about the objective and the objective is just to get this player as good as they can possibly be. And, uh, and I think that's, that's when it's really functioning at its highest level. Now, obviously the, the skill is going to change, but are there any foundations you talked about, about teaching and learning or just principles you believe in? Like if we were to pick a skill, like, uh, if you want to run a faster offense with Canada, are you showing your setters what international players are doing so they have a model to work off of? Are they watching video of themselves? Are they statting it? Or how are they gaining this belief that, you know, yesterday I was three out of five, tomorrow I'm going to be four out of five, or not tomorrow, two weeks or whatever it is. But how do you know that they're progressing? Like, what are some things that you do to encourage learning that other coaches could start to apply in their gym? Yeah, I mean, stats we do very sparingly and carefully. Um, we do a little bit of that, but more it's all the above of all the other stuff. I mean, we're, uh, we're presenting the goal and making sure they understand it and we're going at the pace of the learner and trying to make it as game-like as possible through each of the steps when they and when they do it right go crazy about it and try to develop this little pure culture where they're 
supporting each other through it, learning through each other through it, and get a lot of video feedback and examples and stories, hopefully, as well. You're just trying to hit it from all sides as much as you possibly can. Now, one thing that was a great opportunity for a lot of our athletes was you had everybody in, in one venue, I understand. So you had FISU and you had your B team and your A team and you were you know announcing rosters for certain events. But I'm wondering, how did you feel comfortable to build those relationships that you could look somebody in the eye and say, you know what, you're not coming to this tournament, you're not on the roster and still have them in your training environment and being a positive influence and still growing because uh, I think people are encouraged when they're named to that team or they meet their goal. But when you have to say, you know what, we're we're not going to take you, you're not good enough or however you're going to phrase it, how do you still work with them the next day at practice and make sure they're still getting better? That's the hardest part of the job for sure. Um, There's really no easy answer. I just, I just say it, um, but I try to say it with, respect you know and uh, and then i also realize you know it's uh it's it's my responsibility to make the decision and it's my responsibility to communicate the decision but uh i, did, I didn't cause the discrepancy between where the player is and, and what we have to tell them that's just part of the job you know and and, and only 12 can make it so i can't you know I, I can't go on and on feeling bad about a fact that there's 30 people in the gym and only 12 can make it. And, uh, and if anything, if I start feeling bad about that, it's just going to make it worse for everybody. So, um, I definitely recognize how much it hurts to hear it as an athlete. And I definitely want to convey that. I understand that. And I take no joy in it, but I also just need to say it. And, uh, you know, the, the, the truth is difficult, but we can handle it. And, um, so I, I, I definitely want to be very aware of, of how I'm saying it and when I'm saying it, but, but you got to say it too. It has to be, it has to be said. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm aware of both things, but it's not, you know, for sure. It's not the easiest, most, most pleasant thing for sure. And was there ever a moment or even like a checkpoint with the team that you, you knew that your expectations or, or the plan that the coaching staff had for the team was taking over, whether it was, you know, the athletes starting to repeat the same language that you're trying to do in teaching or anything that saw buy-in or even, even little things like, uh, I think Kira and Bree both skipped university to go play pro with the goal of helping Canada qualify for the Olympics. So when someone's making decisions like that, are you kind of looking around the coach's office being like, yeah, we've got some athlete buy-in, we're going in the right direction here? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, we had, we were lucky enough before we left for Peru for the qualifier, we had six weeks, um, to train which was invaluable for us. And I, and I think it's never, a, excuse me, it's never a straight line. Uh, you know, it's kind of the road is windy, but the path goes up, you know, it was a, it was a windy, messy road, but we could see, we could see the buy-in continually going up. And I think, uh, what was it before, uh, we went to Chateauguay, um, you know, we were able to beat Puerto Rico, Mexico, which was nice. That's not like, it doesn't mean you've made it or anything, but you know, that was, it was nice to see that. And then we went to USA, and played their Pan Am Cup team, and we all know how deep and talented the USA is. And you know, we were able to we played with our starting team and won all five sets or four sets. However many we played the first night, and then we uh, played a different roster, and just lost in five the next night. So I think our belief is building off of that. And then uh, by the time we went to VNL, I thought we were we were still surprised. We we're still still euphoric uh, when we won it. But I think like somewhere in the middle of VNL, the middle of that tournament. Um, we just really started to believe it was just, I could just, we just all felt it was a different unit and uh, we could, we could play some volleyball and, but you know, it's, it's hard for me to hit one spot, but you could kind of see it going in the direction we were all hoping it would go, you know, over time. And I'm wondering if you could share what your process is to either get feedback or to debrief. So it sounds like you're aware of a lot of things and, and you're willing to be vulnerable, but 
how do you find those moments to kind of debrief and make sure that, you know, your practice was good or you need to improve or that game plan didn't work like those types of things? Yeah, I think it's kind of a combination. I, I, I try to build a system that provides a routine for everyone. So, you know, you want to kind of build in those feedback models. You know, I think the debrief is really important. Um, and, uh, you know, like we, all we have is our, you know, I think for different environments too, like all, all we had was our, our practices. That's all we had to get better and to get ready. And we also didn't know each other very well as a staff. So I thought those debriefs were just critical, you know, or maybe if we'd been together for eight years, maybe we, you know, uh, maybe we could have debriefed a little quicker than we were able to um, for our staff. But I thought that debrief time was critical. So I really tried to build it into the day. I mean, it's one goal for me, period. I was just trying to create a routine for everybody, like a daily work routine um, for, for everyone at every level in the Oval. So you have those debriefs. And then, I, you know, I think the way you ask feedback is really important, you know, speaking last. Uh, if you say something definitive, try to make sure you ask, like, what do you think also so you can get everybody's feedback, unless it's not one of those moments and you just got to charge. Um, you know, down to your body language and your tone, you know, I mean, just are, are you are you inviting, am I inviting feedback or am I shutting myself off? And, you know, sometimes I do it better than others, but I think starting from the structure and going all the way down to how you're receiving the feedback when they're giving it, just trying to be intentional and in all those levels in between. Awesome. Awesome. I feel like we're just scratching the surface. We're gonna have to get you back on because I feel like there's a lot more <laughs> stories here, but uh, it, it wouldn't be <laughs> uh, it wouldn't be a passing times episode if we didn't somehow work in beach into this in this conversation. So with you being a beach player growing up, were you excited with the opportunity when beach became an NCAA sport? Like at what moment did you coach both? I think LMU was maybe your first opportunity to coach at, uh, NCAA beach. Yeah, that's right when the sport got created. And yeah, I jumped at it. I, I did this proposal for our AD and I think I, I showed him how we could run it on two or three thousand dollars total and he like basically said, like, I'm gonna pull the gun to your head and I'll let you spend a dollar more than two thousand dollars. I said deal. <laughs> and uh we we bought our volleyballs and we were really close to the beach. We were blessed and uh it like tripled our training time and uh let us compete year round. So it was just huge for our overall experience and then you know i got john mayer to help me out right away and we just built the program up together and i was beyond stoked to just hand it off to him and he's, he's a way better beach coach than i am and um but it was just a really organic process uh going through that and it was it was really fun i was really glad to uh, really grateful to have that experience with him so with you coaching and going back and forth and obviously sharing some athletes at lmu who are playing on the the beach and indoor team are there just some volleyball truths that athletes should be good at if they're going to play both? Like, is the platform straight and simple, just a different target, or do you teach different hand setting? Like, where does the game become more the same than they are different, and where are some little changes that you focus on as a coach? Yeah, so the, law, the laws of physics and biomechanics apply. So the the fundamental skills are the same, and the tactics are different, right? So you know, you uh, you know, if I'm going to oversimplify it, you know, in indoor, you're trying to create space all the time to create seams to attack through and on the beach you're trying to keep your space really consistent and uh, so you can you know get a repeatable side out attack and then obviously as the, team, as the players get better on the beach you can start spacing out and doing some cool stuff um but you know if you're taking the if you're taking the mechanic the bare bone fundamental offensive principles the you know one's trying to get wider and faster and the other's trying to be really really consistent and can your skills allow you but the skills themselves you know physics still apply biomechanics still apply so you know uh, so those are the same. And did you find it a nice mental break going from like your indoor season to the beach? Like, did it get exciting with the sport changing or how did you 
find time Love to manage it. and make like a yearly training plan for both and all the stuff that goes into it. Right. Uh, I just, I just loved it. I got completely absorbed in whichever one I was coaching and I, I felt, I felt mixing the two were really seamless and I, you know, I could see our players developing and I yeah, absolutely loved it. It was just so cool to see our players, you know, just not even just the, their skills got better. Their, their volleyball IQ got better. Their physiology got better. Their bodies got more resilient by alternating between the services. You know, there's a lot of science on that also. And, um, their competitiveness improved. Uh, I just thought it was awesome. I loved it. Nice. And I'm sure a lot of listeners are getting fired up because uh, hopefully our, our indoor season is going to start on time with our, our youth athletes here in Canada. So with any coaches kind of sitting down and looking into schedule and maybe trying to build out a yearly training plan, is there any principles you have in your schedule, whether you're coaching a club team, a national team, an NCAA team that like you want to make sure that you're you know able to peak or you want to make sure you're tracking training load? Like what are some things that you put into your plan, like I said, that exist at every level? Yeah, I think you're talking about tapering. I mean, for sure, you gotta you gotta be really aware of the physical load of your players, and you want to be able to play well when you're competing. So, you know, I think that's where that's where the practice plan comes in, and you, you should have an awareness of, after your practice plan. Like this player should take this based on this plan. This player will be taking this many jumps, and this player will be taking this many jumps. And then, if you happen to have an athletic trainer that you trust, you can run it by him, and you guys can do you can work through that load together. You know, and if you're uh, if you have an athletic trainer and a strength coach that you trust, then you can get a little triangle going where the, the athlete's in the middle of that triangle and you can make sure you're passing off your your weekly your weekly practice plan and your daily practice plans and you can get a really good a really good uh, plan going for your athletes. So is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah. I was just wondering if there's any tricks. Like obviously with the national team you have more resources in an IST team and all that other stuff, right? But yeah. if you're coaching club by yourself or maybe working a day job and then going to the practice gym, like is there anything you sacrifice that maybe you, you like to have at, as a volleyball Canada national team coach, but you know that you wouldn't do this as a club coach? Yeah, well, you're sacrificing a lot for sure. But I think you can, you know, like if I, if I had absolutely no resources and I was coaching a club team, I mean, I would get a strength coach on the phone that I trusted until one would finally talk to me and I'd be like, Hey, what, what are some core movements that all my athletes have to do to be safe? You know, okay, well, you got they have to do this full up and down squat and, you know, I would, they, they got to be able to rotate like this. So the shoulders doesn't feel a lot of pressure. And, uh, I'd be clear on that. And then I'd be like, okay, well, what, once there's, once they can move, how do I strengthen those movements? You're like, okay, we'll get some weighted balls that they can throw and get some, you know, and I, so I, I think no matter what, you, you, you just got to be willing to find the information out. And I think you can do some things where sure. I'm not going to make this kid, this kid off this strength program isn't going to be an Olympic athlete, but they will be a functional athlete and they'll be a healthy athlete and you can kind of build from there. Um, so I think no matter what your resources are, um, there, there's a way to, to make sure your athletes are still safe and, and growing and developing. And then obviously the more resources you have, the, the better you can make that process. All right, Tom, I'm just looking at the clock, man. I want to thank you a lot for all you've shared with us. I'm definitely fired up to get back in the gym and coach, and I'm sure our listeners are too because this is a lot of stuff you've shared. So uh, hopefully everyone becomes a big fan of Georgia, and if they're not already, and you know can cheer on Team Canada and root you on. But uh, thanks for sharing all that you did. And I guess the, the easiest way to follow up with what you're doing is just to check out that website, check out Team Canada, Gold Medal Squared. Like If we just do a Google search, are we going to find all the stuff you're involved in? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I, I uh, yeah. UGA website or uh, Team Canada. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, TBlockVB. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm pretty accessible. So. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again for taking the time and, and sharing all that you did. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on.